You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Thank you again for the invitation to open God's word. Uh, It would be really good to keep open your Bibles so that um, we can refer back to the text as we go along. Today's sermon is fundamentally about communication and one of the key aspects of communication is of course to reach the other person with the message that you are trying to convey. This can sometimes be very very simple if the other person speaks the same language as you Um, and therefore understands you very, very well. But there can be significant complicating factors, not only language, but people can have different worldviews, different philosophies, different belief systems, um, different cultures. And all of these things can make communication really, really difficult. And sometimes the lack of communication or the lack of effective communication rather can be quite spectacular in its consequences. A friend of mine once told a story that is an almost perfect illustration of the misunderstanding and chaos that can ensue when two worldviews meet each other across a sea of mutual incomprehension. He served as a missionary on the island of Madagascar, not the DreamWorks version, the, the real life version. And Part of what he did was to take small groups of uh, students mostly into the interior of the island to be involved in projects to help local churches. What he would do is to take an interpreter, uh, visit some villages uh, and canvas opinion as to what needed to be done uh, in their setting. Sometimes they needed help with aspects of ministry and very often they also needed physical help. Uh, For example, uh, building projects or perhaps uh, being involved in clinics or education uh, efforts. So he would go in, do a kind of a scouting mission, one might say, uh, and then um, he would recruit teams to come and be involved in working through some of these projects. The first few times, or the first many times rather, he would take along an interpreter because he was not all that comfortable with the Malagasy language yet. And the interpreter would, of course, um, help him to be understood and to also understand what the local villagers were saying. But over time, he became much more confident. And so he decided to, maybe for the first time, uh, go on his own without an interpreter. Uh, you can probably see where this story is uh, is going. Anyway, they um, went to a specific village and it quickly became clear that uh, this village needed a new church. They, um, the church that was in the village was very dilapidated, um, not fit for purpose anymore. And um, so it was decided that the mission team would come uh, do a bit of a building project and help the, uh, the community in this way. Now, apparently, I'm no expert in the Malagasy language. I'm I'm just telling what I was told. There are two words that um, he could have used 
to describe what the team would be doing. He called like a meeting and told the villagers what's about to happen. The one word means something like, we will come to restore what has deteriorated. In other words, a renovation project. The other word means we will come to demolish and rebuild. Now, of course, he should have used the first word, we are coming to renovate. Instead, he used the second word. In other words, they will come to demolish and rebuild. This might not have been all that serious, except that the local people were so infused by the project that they decided to complete the first bit before the team arrived. So they tore down their church. So the demolishing was out of the way. So when the poor mission team rocked up, all that they found was a pile of bricks. And the renovation project turned into a building project very quickly. And apparently they pulled it up, uh, pulled it off uh, with, uh, with great skill. This is a rather graphic example of what can happen when communication goes awry, when we do not manage to bridge the divide between us and other people. Only in most cases, we do not see piles of physical bricks, but rather, sadly, often broken relationships and misunderstanding. And this problem is compounded when communication takes place, not only across cultural or linguistic divides, but also across religious divides. In sharing the gospel, we can so easily say the wrong thing or say the right thing in the wrong way. This is obviously not merely a hypothetical problem. Here in multicultural Australia, we are increasingly rubbing shoulders with people from a vast range of faith traditions and worldviews. And as Christians with a passion for sharing the gospel, we should therefore take steps to educate ourselves in the best ways to bring the gospel to those who bow to another god or gods, or who have a completely different worldview from our own. The passage that we read together is a good place to start thinking about the best ways to witness to those who are completely outside the Christian faith. It describes a significant early encounter between a follower of Christ and members of a belief system that would have been completely foreign to the earliest followers of Christ. Many of whom, of course, were from the Jewish religion. When we look at most of the early speeches in the book of Acts, they are aimed at people who are either Jews or, have, or who have been significantly influenced by the Jewish religion, most notably the so-called God-fearers, whom we encounter at several points throughout the book of Acts. It was therefore the assumption of certain shared values and articles of faith. So when Paul preached to people from a Jewish background or influenced by Judaism, he was able to draw upon a significant store of shared languages and ideas. We obviously know that Paul did not only preach to people from a Jewish background. He was, of course, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his specific calling, to speak to people on the outside. But we do not have many extended accounts of his preaching to a totally pagan or Gentile audience in the book of Acts. 
the one that we read today is the longest <clears throat> and most detailed. And we can therefore see it as in some ways representative of Paul's strategy in reaching a pagan audience. Before we dig into the text itself, let's just very briefly review how Paul got into this situation before we work through some of the implications of this passage for our own encounters with people of other faiths, worldviews, and ideologies. We read in verse 13 of Acts 17 that there was agitation against Paul in Berea. I often quip that the last point of Paul's sermons was often a riot. Uh, and this was clearly the case here in uh, Berea because often people were not willing or ready to hear the message. It was decided uh, in the wake of this that Paul should go to Athens, where he would wait for Timothy and Silas. Most likely it was felt that Paul would be somewhat safer in Athens because of the fact that it is a, a larger city where he might not be that well known. Now, of course, if you know anything about history, Athens immediately evokes certain associations, uh, associations with the glories of ancient, Greek, uh, ancient Greece. And, and so it should. Athens was, of course, an incredibly important city for its time. By the time Paul steps into Athens, it's a little bit beyond its glory days. Uh, we are, of course, now in the flowering of the, the Roman Empire. And so the glories of Greece, uh, to a certain extent, lies in the past. And Athens itself was very much a shadow of its former self. But still, it was considered to be one of the most important cultural and intellectual centers of the Roman Empire. We can see something of this in Luke's remark in verse 16, where he stated, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. One can almost imagine the tourist brochures, tired of working, come to Athens and solve the world's problems. And clearly, many people saw Athens in this way. Athens was seen by the elite Roman society as almost a kind of a finishing school where you could send your sons especially to learn a bit of philosophy. So a lot of ideas were floating around. In addition to Athens's reputation as a talking shop, it was also still a major religious center focused on devotion to the ancient Greek gods. One of the famous images of Athens that most of us can conjure up in our minds is, of course, that of the Acropolis, which was, of course, an, a, a pagan temple. And many, many other pagan temples were scattered throughout the city. A little after Paul's visit to Athens, the Roman writer Petronius, who wrote in the mid-60s of the first century, famously said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So here we see two aspects of this famous city, a hotbed of philosophical speculation, but also a place of pagan devotion, where many, many people 
were bowing before the pagan gods. So Paul steps into this place and initially he follows his regular pattern of going to the synagogue and speaking to the God-fearers. We see that in verse 17. So these would be Gentile people who were heavily influenced by Judaism. But he goes beyond that. He speaks in the marketplace. Verse 18 tells us. Now, this approach was obviously going to bring him within earshot of dyed-in-the-wool pagans, Gentiles, and so it proves. Luke tells us that Paul is overheard by a group of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Both of these philosophical schools would have acknowledged the existence of the gods, but would have had different opinions about how active the gods are in the world. The idea of a creator god who directs the affairs of the world would almost certainly have been strange and repulsive to these uh, philosophers. And so we see three basic reactions. The first one is rather dismissive. Uh, what is this babbler trying to say? We're looking at this 18 to 19. Um, in other words, he has nothing really of any value to tell us. But the second uh, two reactions really ties in to the nature of Athens, as I've just described it. Uh, some people say he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And that may have caused the ears of the Athenians who are religiously inclined to prick up. Oh, you know, we're always ready to, to learn or to think about the gods. Others say, well, he's advocating strange ideas. And again, Athens is a place where people are quite fond of uh, exchanging strange ideas. So at least some people there would therefore have been uh, willing to listen and to interact with what Paul had to say. And this then led to him being brought before the Areopagus. This is a hill um, just down the slope of the uh, uh, Acropolis that is uh, sometimes also known as Mars Hill. So Ares would be the, um, the Greek name for the god of war, um, and Mars would have been the Roman name for him. So that's why we have these uh, two names. Uh, and an Athenian deliberative body or court uh, met here at the Areopagus. Um, so we probably should not think necessarily of just a, an informal group of philosophers meeting. Um, this would, in some sense, have been a kind of a formal hearing. Paul is not under arrest, but he's certainly asked to explain himself in no uncertain terms. And so he is given what one might call an open goal. Uh, Paul, tell us what you're about. Um, and uh, of course, being the apostle to the Gentiles, he's not going to pass up this opportunity. So Paul launches into a long speech or sermon in which he very carefully and clearly communicates the gospel to the Athenians. And what he says is remarkable, both in terms of what he communicates, in other words, the content of the message, and how he communicates. My emphasis this afternoon is going to be somewhat skewed towards the how, in other words, Paul's missionary strategy, if you want, to this pagan audience. Uh, and by paying attention to how he communicates, we can learn quite a few lessons when it comes to sharing 
the gospel with people who are very different in outlook, belief, or worldview from us. So let's look specifically again at the how of Paul's communication. Of course, I will pull in some of the content of what he said, but please remember that this will be my focus throughout uh, Paul's strategy, if you will, here. There are three things that shine through to my mind. The first one is that Paul clearly took great care to communicate with respect. Paul wanted to bring the message across in such a way that people would listen to him and not you know, immediately be simply angry at him for his rudeness or abrasiveness. Athens was not an easy place for Paul to visit. Let's get this clear from the outset. Luke tells us as much. He says that Paul was greatly distressed by all the idols that he saw there. To give you an idea of the level of distress that we are talking about here, the word used here, paruxono in the Greek, is used for Christ's anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, of course, Christ's anguish was of a, a whole different order of magnitude, uh, but you can see that, that a very, very strong word to describe the stress is used here. We get the English word paroxysm from paroxono, and this refers to the stirring up of anger, sharp contention, angry dispute. Uh, Paul was probably therefore not only upset, but also really, really angry because he is confronted by rank idolatry. And idolatry does not sit easy with someone who is from Paul's background as a believing Pharisaical Jew. It was something that he would not have been able to abide. Let me try and translate this. Uh, into a, a modern metaphor. Perhaps Paul felt as someone would feel if you are a devoted vegan walking into the meat section of Queen Victoria Market. It is just so entirely wrong in your own mind, opposite to everything that you hold dear. And this is Paul's reaction to the idolatry. And a, an almost logical reaction to feeling this way might then be to give people a piece of your mind, to let rip, to tell them how horrible what they are doing is. And yet we see that Paul does not let rip. Instead, by God's grace, he bites his tongue and he communicates in a respectful and measured way. This must have taken a considerable amount of self-discipline, which is why I said that this is probably due to the desperate work in his life at this moment. So why do I say that he's communicating in a respectful and measured way? A few things. Verse 22, he acknowledges their religiosity. Men of Athens, he says, I can see that you are in every way very religious. Now, Paul is obviously not affirming the content of their religion. 
He's not saying it is great that you worship who you worship, but he is making comment about the sincerity and the devotion that these people are pouring into their religious lives. And no doubt, many of them would have seen this remark as a compliment because they wanted to be seen, be seen sorry, as rather religious and devoted. Paul also speaks in a language that the people can understand. He tries to meet them where they were in terms of their own thinking, of their own worldview, and he communicates along those lines with them. I'll say much more about this uh, in a moment. I'm not going to uh, focus too much more on this aspect. This aspect. He uh, quotes one of their poets in verse 28. This is another way of recognizing things that are important to them. And interestingly, he makes a really strong appeal to common humanity. Verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Who is included in the phrase all mankind? Well, everybody, both Paul and his Athenian audience. In a real sense, he wants to remind them, or teach them rather, that we come from the same source, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So these are all ways in which Paul reaches out to his audience, in which he clearly demonstrates his respect for them and indicates his willingness to take them and their concerns seriously. This is important because Paul will go on to say some really difficult things, things that would be quite offensive to the Athenians. But he does not do so through a full frontal attack. He does not start his sermon by saying, you rank idolaters. How terrible it is of you to believe these things. Instead, he attempts to be as respectful as possible. This is a lesson that we would do well to, uh, well to learn today. We need to be clear about the fact that the message of the cross will always be offensive to some, if not most, of those who hear it for the first time. In fact, in Galatians 5.11, Paul refers to the offense of the cross. So this message will always be hard to stomach for some, if not most, people. And we can't sugarcoat that aspect of it. People need to see themselves in their lostness before God. But Paul is very careful to place the offense where it belongs, on the message and not the messenger. In other words, he tries to be as personally inoffensive as possible so that the offense is not located in his personality or methods, but rather on the message that he is bringing. So this is the first thing that I think shines through really clearly, especially from the beginning of Paul's great sermon here in Athens. His sincere attempt to respectfully reach out and meet people on their own terms. And in our relationships with people of other faiths, worldviews, and ideologies, we should certainly take this message to heart. 
and remember the timeless truth of Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The second principle that I want to highlight was how Paul met people where they were in terms of their own worldviews and their own ideologies. Everyone on earth, everyone whom you and I will meet, will already have basic concepts of the divine and of right and wrong, even if it is simply to reject these things out of hand. The Apostle Paul here does his level best to understand what these concepts, truth, the divine, right and wrong, means to the Athenians. And then he shares the gospel, interacting with that understanding. Here are some ways in which he did this. Most famously, of course, Paul makes reference to the unknown God. Verse 23, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. This is just masterful in terms of connecting his message to what would be familiar to them, because he actually connects it to a physical object in their city. What probably happened here was that some Athenians may have been nervous about the fact that they skipped on the worship of some of the gods, maybe gods whom they don't know well enough to worship properly. So as a kind of a divine insurance policy, some of them dedicated this altar to an unknown god. And Paul's entire sermon here is in some ways a play on this, making sure that they understand that God, the true God of the universe, can be known, need not remain an unknown God. He recognizes that they already have some notion of the divine. It's not enough to save them. It's not even true, but it will at the very least be a good springboard from which to begin a gospel conversation. Again, just those words, uh, just a masterful intro. What you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul then goes on to speak about the futility of idol worship. From Paul's perspective, in walking around Athens, the main error in the Athenians' conception of the divine was that they believed that they were able to represent God or the gods and to offer true worship to it. This is, of course, why Luke tells us that he was greatly distressed by the idolatry, idolatry around them. Not simply because they were wasting their money on all of those statues, but also because they were seeking God in all the wrong ways. And this is why Paul makes this his entry point after speaking about the unknown God. The God who made the world and everyone, everything in it, verse 24, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So Paul 
goes really toe-to-toe -to -toe with idolatry here. In essence, saying to them, you may think that this is the way to understand, love, and worship God, but it's not. I'm going to show you a better way. I said earlier that Paul had to say some hard things, and, and here's the first one of them, where he very clearly makes the point that God cannot be obeyed and served through serving idols. Instead, he goes on to make the point of God's imminence, that God is close to all of us in a way that the Athenians probably did not really appreciate or understand. However, there would have been some people among the audience who believed that God is far superior to the earthly representations or the gods would be far superior to the earthly rep representation that was made of them. And so there was a strong undercurrent in Greek philosophy that scorned temples and temple worship, most notably in the philosophers Plato and Zeno. These philosophers tended to paint the gods as distant and not at all interested in human lives. In fact, some of them even taught that the core orientation of the gods towards humanity is that of apatheia. In other words, not really caring about humanity one way or the other. So Paul challenged, challenges this with an insight into the true nature of God. Not only does he emphasize God's care and provision, he also speaks again of God's imminence, of God's closeness to humanity in reaching out to us and seeking a relationship with us. Verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move in, and have our being. He is, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there, and therefore he cannot be ignored. We need to get to the place, Paul tells them, where we have to come to terms, not only with who this God is, and with what he demands of us. And this brings us to the next point in his sermon. We have certain responsibilities towards God. Again, at the risk of oversimplification, Paul is speaking really to two audiences here. One aimed at temple worship and idolatry, and the other perhaps more philosophically inclined. Both have created in their own minds comfortable places where they could stash the divine. In the case of the idolaters, appeasement. Just, you know, go to the temple, make offerings, keep the gods happy. In the case of the philosophers, placing the gods in some kind of mental corner where they could safely be ignored. This is sheer ignorance, and Paul deals with these two errors in short order. He makes it clear there's only one God, and he's not made of wood or stone, and this God places some demands on our lives. Most notably, the demand to repent. Verse 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. So the way Paul speaks here is very significant. He does his level best to connect the people, the, the gospel, with where people are in their own thinking, and then using that as a springboard to challenge their deepest held beliefs. 
It is still the same gospel that was proclaimed in the earlier parts of the book of Acts when it was presented to Jewish audiences. But it is now presented in terms that this pagan audience could fully understand and relate to. We should go to the same lens as Paul did in trying to understand the Athenians and then present the gospel in ways that would connect with them. This does not mean, please understand this, that we seek to compromise the gospel. Not at all. It is that we seek ways in which we can be more effective in sharing it. So, just to make this practical, if we speak to someone who is from a Muslim background, maybe the jumping off point will be the certainty of salvation that we are promised through the merits of Christ, speaking to people who believe that they will get to heaven on their own merits. When we speak to a Hindu audience, we can focus on Christ as the one who can take away heavy burdens as we are addressing people who believe that they are struggling under centuries-old burdens of karma. When we speak to secular humanists, we can focus on the fact that there is indeed something beyond the here and now. And we can point to the way in which God revealed himself to this world. Maybe an illustration will help a little bit here. In my adult life, I've lived in uh, three countries, South Africa, the UK, and Australia. In each of them, the electrical current is exactly the same. In other words, you can use a toaster or a radio or a microwave, um, and it won't blow up. The electrical current is exactly the same. However, you need to, of course, adapt the uh, appliances, either for using an adapter, or, to or for changing the wall plug so that you can have access to that electrical current. In the same way, we are talking here about the same gospel, but when I'm speaking to a Muslim, a Hindu, or a secular humanist, I need to ask the question, how does the gospel most effectively plug into the concerns and the beliefs of this person? So just to recap quickly, Paul starts off by making it clear that he wants to communicate in the most respectful way possible. Secondly, he meets them where they are, taking their concerns, their beliefs seriously and presenting the gospel in terms that they can understand and relate to. And then lastly, and I've already alluded to this, Paul does not shy away from the truth. He says the hard things that needs to be said. If the people of Athens thought that Paul was simply there to affirm them in their existing beliefs, they were in for a massive surprise. It would have been easy for Paul to just be nice and respectful and to leave it at that. But that's not what the sharing of the gospel demanded, of course. So Paul goes on to say certain things that the Athenians found really, really hard to hear. Verse 24, that God is the supreme creator of everything. Not many gods, 
one God who created everything. That humanity, verse 27, that we all have a responsibility before this God. That this God will judge humanity, verse 31, and that the resurrection from the dead, especially the resurrection of Jesus, is the proof of this. Let's focus for a moment on the heart of Paul's gospel presentation, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So Paul started all the way back at the beginning by referring to the unknown God. Here towards the end of the sermon, he has revealed who God is. And not only in a conceptual or philosophical sense, but also in a very practical sense by saying to the Athenians, you need to turn to this God because he will judge one day and he has given full assurance that this is the case through raising his son from the dead. So the gospel presentation here ends, of course, by focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. Again, this would have been very, very hard for the Athenians to hear for a variety of reasons. They would have rejected much of what Paul is saying here. And again, we see that there's a strong reaction where many people simply cannot stomach these truths. So sharing the truth can sometimes be very, very difficult. But it is something that has to be done. Sugarcoating the gospel or taking away little bits that we think might be hard or offensive for people to hear does nobody any favors because then we're not proclaiming the full gospel. But remember what we said earlier, that earlier principle. The offense should be here in the truths of the gospel and not in my personality, methods, or delivery. But we cannot and should not shy away from saying the hard things, calling people to repentance, calling them to submit to Christ. Now, people will react differently to such an honest sharing of the gospel. Some will jeer, some will reject, but by his grace, God may call some to faith. We see in this passage, essentially, three reactions. In the first instance, there's outright rejection. People who do not want to hear anything more, they've made up their minds, uh, they are not going to accept this message. Some mocked, Luke tells us. A second group is kind of on the fence. Also verse 32, we will hear you again on this. Um, we're not fully convinced, but 
we're also uh, not rejecting this out of hand. We will hear you again. And then the third and final reaction is the one that uh, gets the angels rejoicing uh, because people come to faith, including two named people, a lady by the name of Damaris and someone called Dionysius. So I guess we can say that the same three reactions would still be part of sharing the gospel. Um, there may be some people who clearly um, are not ready. Maybe they will be ready by God's grace at another time, uh, but their reaction is mockery and rejection. Somehow it brings me great comfort that even the Apostle Paul uh, had this as one of the reactions to sharing the gospel. Then there are people who maybe we need to uh, interact with a little bit more. They, they need to uh, hear some more um, information. They need to have some of their doubts silenced. They need a little bit more debate or, or whatever. We need to be ready for that. And then some people, by God's grace, will be called into the kingdom. And we need to love and disciple them so that they can become established in the faith. So let me just pull everything together. We are called to bridge many, many divides uh, as we, we share the gospel, to build bridges. Building a bridge is, of course, <laughs> exactly what a bridging divide is. As we seek to connect with people and bring the gospel in ways that they can understand. Your church is a church that, as part of its mission statement, says that you want to reach our world to know, love, and live for Jesus. For this to happen, you will need to bridge many, many divides by God's grace and through the enabling of Holy Spirit. All of us are called to build these kinds of gospel bridges. And again, this passage is just a, a wonderful guide from which we can learn about how to do this in a way that will glorify God. And if he is willing to bring people into his kingdom. And may it therefore be true of you and me that as we speak across a divide of faith, ideology, language, culture, whatever, that we communicate with the utmost respect, that we seek to understand and meet people where they are, and that we don't shy away from the truth, but that we share the gospel in all of its truth and power. May this indeed be true of you in your personal witness, and may it also be true of the corporate witness of cross and crown. May God bless us as we do these things in his name. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for its truth, for its power, uh, and for its clarity. We thank you, Lord, for causing this uh, great sermon of the Apostle Paul at the Areopagus to be written down by Luke, and for everything that we can learn from it in terms of our own witness in this day. Lord, I pray that these truths will, be, will indeed be part of our own individual witness 
and of the witness of this church. May they be like a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden as they seek to, with understanding and respectfully, share the great and sometimes hard truths of the gospel in the society where you have placed them. Glorify your name through them and make them effective ambassadors for your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.